Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks uh, for attending. We have an amazing uh, panel today. We have an amazing uh, group of attendees today as well. I think over 600 people um, have, uh, have signed up to hear the latest in what looks like an ongoing um, a series of discussions about uh, where we are. I think every time we uh, have a discussion, we think maybe this might be, you know, where things settle down. I, I think as of what's going on right now, uh, we shouldn't be too optimistic about that. I think we still uh, have a lot, a lot of ground to cover. Uh, to, to help us in this, and, and as you may know, I'll, I'll remind you, this is a, a program that's organized by the International Antiviral Society USA. Um, nonprofit uh, uh, education uh, uh, organization, and uh, one that uh, really tries to uh, bring out um, the latest um, uh, information for, especially for clinicians, but anyone who's interested. Uh, our focus has been HIV, but obviously uh, COVID is uh, is a very dominant issue right now, and. There's no better group of three people, I think, uh, honestly, to, to help uh, guide us through this than our panel today. Uh, I'll go down uh, the list on my slide, Peter Chin Hong uh, from the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, by the way, I'm Paul Volberting, uh, also from UCSF. Uh, Carlos Del Rio from uh, Emory uh, University School of Medicine. Uh, and uh, Yvonne Bonnie uh, Maldonado from Stanford University. Each, each of these panelists play an important role in, in our uh, national and international response to the, uh, to the pandemic. And I know from, a, from a, a prep conversation we had the other day that my job is easy. I, I kind of stay out of their way while, uh, while they fight it out. Um, and and uh, I think the topics that we're going to try to address um, uh, guarantee a, a, a lively discussion. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right in. The, the format here is, is just very relaxed. Uh, no slides, no presentations. Um, uh, answering questions. Um, and we'll try to um, uh, address issues that the audience finds uh, finds important. Um, maybe uh, because I know that Bonnie's been up to her elbows in issues around immunization, have her start out uh, with kind of explain the last 24 hours in, uh, in vaccination for COVID, especially as we start thinking about COVID in children. Bonnie, by the way, is a pediatric uh, infectious disease person, uh, kind of right right place uh, for, for this discussion. Bonnie, do you want to take, take a, a start? Yeah, thank you, Paul. And thanks to everybody for joining today. Um, so the two key things that happened in the last 24 hours, most of you probably know, is that uh, the FDA provided full BLA approval. That is absolute you know, open approval for the Moderna vaccine, a two-dose series, um, four weeks apart for people 18 and older. And we spent the whole day today um, in our CDC ACIP meeting, talking about the clinical guidance for that. And so that was unanimously approved by the CDC to go forward as a, a recommendation. Um, there was an additional discussion there about um, an overview of all of the data from, especially from Canada, but from around the world uh, regarding increasing the interval of dosing of the Moderna vaccine in particular. There's quite a bit of data from around the world 
And in it, the data indicate very strongly as we've all been hearing bits and pieces, but when you pull it all together, the totality of the data really suggests that um, eight weeks, uh, eight weeks seems to be an optimal interval between the first and the second dose in providing not only higher titers of neutralizing antibody, but possibly longer lasting effectiveness, which is great for deflecting deferring boosters. And thirdly, it also incidentally appeared to reduce the risk of myocarditis in the second dose of the mRNA vaccine. So that is going to be something that will be discussed in more detail by CDC itself and their clinical guidance, which will be coming out in the next week or so. But, but because it's BLA fully approved, physicians will be able to write the, uh, write the prescriptions themselves, give the vaccines um, without EUA guidance, meaning they don't have to follow the letter of the EUA. And there will likely, although we're not sure yet, likely be um, some guidance to be able to give the, the vaccine between four to eight weeks or so after the second, the first second dose, four to eight weeks after the first dose. So that gives a lot, lot more latitude. There was some more discussion about immunocompromised individuals, but we can talk about that later. Uh, Bonnie, before you go on, um, I, I know that uh, the question of myocarditis has been especially uh, an issue in young men, uh, vaccine recipients. Uh, uh, is that still the case? And does this extend down into the adolescent uh, uh, group as well. I know that uh, some parents have been uh, reluctant to vaccinate their, uh, their their kids. Yeah, I'll talk about the pediatric component in a bit, but the, yes, absolutely. If you look at the data, because remember, Moderna BLA is for 18 and older. Um, the Pfizer BLA, which was uh, approved in December, is 16 and older, but the Moderna has the highest risk for myocarditis, but still in the group, it's interesting, the group that was at highest risk were 18 to even 49 year old men, but the highest risk really were the 18 to um, 29 year olds. Um, and there was a lower level of risk for women in that in 18 to 29 year olds, but that risk was about five per million doses given. Whereas the peak in the 18 to 29 year olds were something like 60 per million doses. So it's still extremely low, but it's really um, the highest uh, risk signal that we've seen for myocarditis. Great. Now, well, the other thing that they have talked about was safety and virtually um, all of the cases that they've been able to um, adjudicate have been completely um, uh, come, come back to normal. Great, great, super. Well, let's come back to, uh, to pediatrics, but let me just toss what uh, you've already opened up, this issue of the full approval uh, to Peter and Carlos. Um, uh, Peter, do you wanna uh, comment on uh, what it means to have uh, have full uh, approval for for the vaccine is going to change uh, how you think about this at all? Yeah, it it, it just means that um, you know I think first of all from a, a prescriber uh, freedom perspective, as Bonnie is pointing out, that's one issue. But uh, I think most of all, I, a lot of mandates um, in schools, etc. Of course, this is not under eighteen for Moderna, but over 18, they rely or hinge on the idea that there's FDA approval. Uh, the third thing is that a lot of people don't realize this, but globally, a lot of countries don't have their own FDA bodies. So they look at the US FDA as a sort of uh, moniker of whether or not something has mustered enough uh, safety data to go for that last step. So it has impact that ripples beyond the United States. 
Great, Carlos. Uh, thoughts on on this before we jump into other topics? You know, I think the the FDA has a process that that works very well, and they are they're very careful in what they do. I think the the EUA was a process that was put in place for an emergency, which is what we're having, and and allowed vaccinating you know millions of people. But you know, the the I remind to people that many times the difference between the EUA and the BLA wasn't necessarily about safety. It had to do more with manufacturing possible practices. It had to do with relying on the manufacturing and ensuring that the product you're producing is actually consistently of the same quality and the same efficacy. And, the, and, and those issues is something that the FDA looks at very carefully. And that really is what held, uh, for example, Moderna a little longer than Pfizer in the approval. It was really that uh, being able to assure that they were going to be able to have that, that manufacturing process, that manufacturing the capabilities. The uh, the other thing, you know, as as people said, this gives people the the opportunity to prescribe outside the EUA. But it also, uh, and we can talk more about some of the things that Bonnie heard about. Should should I space the the the, the dosing, etc.? I mean, there are things you can do here. But also, you know, the companies now can sell it, and interestingly enough, can advertise it. You cannot advertise something until you have an FDA approval. But now with FDA approval, they can actually advertise it. So. Don't be surprised if you start seeing advertising for this, you know, COVID vaccines. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Bonnie, I thought that uh, the issue with Moderna with the uh, duration uh, from the from the initial to the second was was very interesting. I, I and probably many others uh, got our second dose as soon as possible, and for most of us, that was about four weeks after the after the first. Are are people who uh, are in that spot? fully vaccinated? Let's open up that yeah, whole question. Know, I, uh, do, do know, we, we're talking yeah. about a matter of degree. And you know, as you all, as everyone has said here, you know, what, this is an evolving situation. Remember, it's hard to remember that far back, but last, but December, 2020, we just needed to get shots out there as fast as we could. And the four week interval was this, that was thought to be optimal at that point to get the vaccine out as quickly as we could. Remember how fast it happened. So now with time, and this is exactly the other reason to have a BLA consideration. You have lots more time now to sit back and watch what happens in other, mostly in other countries. And the Canadians had a really nice set of data. You can look at it on their uh, ACI and the CDC website, go to cdc.gov and look up ACIP. You can see all the data there. Um, looking at over time what happened and if you and they did space out their intervals in different ways in different provinces so they were able to compare province by province and it was very clear that um, there were differences but they weren't amazingly different so if you've got you know i got just by chance i happened to get two modernas i don't know why i just walked into the hospital that's what i got but that that um you know it doesn't i in my view as long as we, you know, right now we're still facing an unvaccinated pandemic. So I think whatever you got is better than nothing. And if you, you, you know, we're talking about 5% differences here. So I think most people are going to be fine. And, six, you know, you can, at five months, the issue is really get people boosted at five months. Um, and there will be a little more granularity as we go forward. And then we'll talk about this later, but what does this mean in an endemic? We can be a little more fine-tuned about how we do approach our vaccine choices. Bonnie, I have a question. Is Go ahead, the, Is the trade name really Spikevax? Yep, yes. it sounds yes, that, that's that, that is the best, that is best, much better than Cominarty. Yeah, Cominarty. <laughs> Spikevax. Yep, 
And you know, it's gonna we'll see it on TV at night. You'll see. It'll, it'll probably yeah, help again, Spike you know, Lee's films. The other too. thing is, as as Bonnie stated, you know, Moderna, remember, you know, Pfizer was three weeks, Moderna was four weeks. That's how the VLAs were done, but that's how the clinical trials were done. So any country, not the US, because the US stayed within the EUA, but many countries went outside the, the clinical trial and they primarily did it because they were trying to get more for one dose into people. And it was primarily, you know. Uh, Canada and also the UK who started spacing it out. And the UK very early on gave 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 a, a, a sort of there was a, a signal on the myocarditis. Well, we were seeing myocarditis. They were really not seeing it that much in the UK. And in great part was because they were they were you know extending out their, their second dose. I, I do think that though it's important to remind people that while the, while the risk of myocarditis is real, the number of, of cases of myocarditis are are incredibly uh, small, considering that the cases of case averted of COVID and hospitalization of COVID, and remind people that COVID also causes myocarditis. So when people talk yeah. about myocarditis from from vaccine, they somehow tend to forget myocarditis from COVID. And also, so, I think people tend to overestimate. And Bonnie can amplify this: the risk of myocarditis in kids, because it's one third the dose. And also, it seems that myocarditis seems to track with testosterone and puberty. So that's why the age is like 16 to 18, if you really look at even the Pfizer data. So I always get, even me as an adult uh, ID person gets asked by parents about the risk under 10 and under 12. And it's always, it's really, really low because that's a barrier parents bring up as well about vaccinating their under 12s. So Peter, uh, uh, give an uh, internal medicine uh, one sentence or two sentence on myocarditis, remind our audience uh, what it is and how you diagnose it and, uh, and what the outcomes are, very brief. Yeah, so myocarditis is uh, itis, which is an inflammation of the muscle. And remember when you get the vaccine, you get a lot of uh, immune activation. So we think that the immune cells gets really excited and, and inflame the muscle of the heart. And you diagnose it by any measure that the muscle is um, excited. So that's troponin, the same number as a heart attack. The symptoms are similar. You can have chest pain, chest pressure, shortness of breaths, uh, sometimes nausea, vomiting. And um, that's how we figure it out with, and then there's a lining of the heart, the pericardium, pericarditis, you can also get as well. So, so it's, great. A, it's a very common and not very common. It's, it's fairly common to see myocarditis in kids. As a pediatrician, we see it on a regular basis. Many viruses can cause myocarditis or pericarditis. And generally kids present with shortness of breath and chest pain. Um, and yeah, and it, and as, as you heard Carlos and uh, Peter say, it is much more severe if you get it from COVID and much more prevalent if you get it from COVID than from the vaccine. So um, an, an issue that I know has been controversial is the is the whole kind of what is a what is a fully vaccinated uh, definition um, and what about the booster and and all of that I want us also to get to the question of does a does an incident case of uh, COVID uh, uh, substitute effectively for a booster? Uh, who wants to start us off on on talking about uh, on boosters? Maybe Carlos. You want to you want to give that a try? Let's start, Paul, by saying that the the booster issue is 
is complicated in the sense that we first started by talking about a third dose for immunocompromised patients. And then we said, well, we're also going to add a booster because it really is not. And, and, and there's a difference between a third dose and a booster. And now it seems like we're back to, well, really, this is a three-dose vaccine, at least the mRNA vaccines. So really, the booster may not be a, truly a booster, but maybe what you need to complete your vaccination schedule. There's been a lot of, especially with Omicron, there's been a lot of discussion about whether CDC should change the definition, but CDC has walked a very fine line in saying, no, we're not going to change the definition. We're going to leave the definition of fully vaccinated as having received two doses of vaccine. But then they added this initial, this additional group that says up to date with your immunizations. And if you're up to date in your immunizations is when you're boosted. And that has significance because if you look at the quarantine uh, requirements, if, you, if you've been exposed to somebody with COVID and you are up to date in your immunizations, uh, meaning you've been boosted, then you don't need to quarantine. You need to just monitor symptoms and so there has, there's actually a difference, but you need to wear a mask, et cetera, but you don't need to quarantine. But if you are fully vaccinated or unvaccinated, you still need to quarantine. So in a way, there's a benefit there in, in getting that booster. And, and clearly the data shows uh, the benefits of boostering against Omicron. And we've seen plenty of data of decreasing hospitalizations, decreasing mortality. And you know, decreasing mortality is, is, is small, but it's still there. So I think, you know, my current, what I tell people is in this day and age, today in the era of Omicron, fully vaccinated in my mind means you have received a booster. Now, the question that comes up in the more complicated part is what you asked next. Okay, so you got two doses of vaccine and then you got a COVID. Do you still need to get boosted? Again, it depends on where you were, right? Uh, in the pre-Omicron era, we probably told people, look, you got a Delta infection. That probably was a booster. And in fact, in JAMA this week, there's a very interesting paper looking at serological findings and in people who have had quote unquote natural infection, and they have pretty good level of antibodies that actually stay for quite some time. But Omicron is different. The preliminary data we've seen with Omicron is precisely because Omicron is more of an upper restoring infection. Omicron may not produce the boosting that you're looking for. So I tell people ignore that Omicron infection and still get boosted. So the, when, when the question is comes is, should I get boosted after an infection? My question is which infection? If it's a recent infection with Omicron, absolutely that doesn't count. If you got infected, if somebody says, well, I got vaccinated back in you know, March, April, and then I got Omicron and I got Delta in, in November, that may be a little, little bit of a different question. And that may be something that I may quibble and say, maybe you don't need to get boosted. But with Omicron, it's a different story and Omicron does not substitute for a booster. So let me just get it, boil it down a little more simplistically yeah, in my yeah. little pediatric mind here. We basically just look for, you know, immunity, and we know that these viruses are coronaviruses, all of them, and um, whatever variants they are. We know that a coronavirus immunity is not long-lasting. Mucosal immunity in general never is long-lasting. So we know that at some point your immunity is going to start to fail. We just published a paper uh, a few couple weeks ago showing that our T cell immunity in longitudinally followed patients drops off by about 10 months after infection. Um, and this was in you know, the uh, alpha era, but even so, um, the point is that um, you're gonna, we're gonna need to boost people to be able to prevent um, serious infection, um, maybe, not, maybe not infection, but serious infection. Uh, and the question about, I think this is semantics and I actually, one of my faculty members is the chair of the ACIP and we discussed this quite a bit. 
the idea of up to date is much better. It's a much broader ability to say, look, you can actually flex that in or out, like Carlos said, to your county, to your state, to make sure uh, your workplace. But the idea being that if you are not boosted, you're gonna, if you know, you, we're gonna see fairly quickly whether or not um, people are gonna start getting infected again. For sure, the Israelis found that and they saw that they needed the boost. Um, so it may be, we'll see what happens with Omicron. It, not necessarily that will, you know, that again, it will may or may not have less immunity, which I think, you know, or Carl, Carlos is right as usual, but, um, but what's the next variant to come along and, and how long will we be protected before that comes, et cetera. So I suspect we'll be boosting for time to come and this up-to-date approach gives you more flexibility so you don't have to keep reinventing that definition. So I think we're, I think we're gonna, um, uh, there, there's so many topics and, and I should remind the audience that uh, use the Q&A function on your Zoom screen uh, to get your uh, uh, questions uh, loaded. I'm going to keep just tossing some some ideas uh, that that the four of us have, have uh, talked about before, but I'm going to definitely try to watch the uh, the audience questions and, and weave them as in as well. Uh, one thing that came up um, in uh, in questions from the audience to begin with, and I know that uh, Peter has uh, thought a lot about this, um, is the is the issue of kind of tell us more specifically who is that really immunocompromised uh, group um, who needs uh, perhaps arguably uh, an, an extra dose uh, right now let's let's assume that it's the extra dose of one of the one of the mrnas uh, Peter do you want to uh, define uh, that group of people and 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 do elderly people fall into that as well that was a question in the in the from the audience Yes, yeah, so I, I think I'd probably start off with the most immunocompromised. As you know, immunocompromised is a spectrum. Like you can score somebody on a 10 out of 10 scale or maybe a one out of 10. So, I, you know, on two ends, you could have somebody who's received a stem cell transplant from somebody else. That's probably the most immunosuppressed or probably even more immunosuppressed than that is somebody from the vaccine perspective, somebody who can't make antibodies, right? Like maybe they're antibody-making factory, which is a plasma cell, it's a disease like Colin Powell and multiple myeloma. So those people on one end. And then on the other end, I would think, you know, people who have liver disease or some diabetes or even HIV-infected individuals with reconstituted immune systems, they're on like maybe the two out of 10 and one out of 10. So that's why we think about immunocompromised in the spectrum. But when, you know, we get these recommendations, I think the public is oftentimes confused. So in terms of the most uh, immunosuppressed folks, uh, you know, people who've had diseased B cells or antibody making factories or people who we give medicines to to shut down those B cells, like medicines like rituximab and things like that, uh, as well as stem cell transplants, solid organ transplants, but in the early part of transplant, they are in like the, the exclamation point and, and then everybody else I think about differently. So those are the folks who I, don't have confidence they would make antibodies even if I gave them a million vaccines. So I'd make sure to give them at least an additional dose and think about on the other hand, if those are still not responding, giving them a long acting monoclonal antibody like Evusheld, even though, you know, again, it all depends on what the next variant is if that monoclonal antibody will work. So that's kind of like the short answer in terms of the older individuals. 
I think they definitely, uh, from the CDC data today, would benefit from a booster, which is a third shot. But immunocompromised individuals, that is that elite group I talked about, uh, at least four shots. You know, and, and I would add, Peter, that I think we have are, are to blame as physicians because, you know, we I see a patient with diabetes who has a, an ulcer and the patient says, well, why do I get this? And I said, well, you know, diabetic people are immunocompromised. So we throw the name, we throw the word immunocompromised freely at a variety of different conditions without necessarily having this, this scoring system that you suggest, you know, and I think we need to, it'd be nice to have I'm thinking maybe we need to make a slide that says one out of 10 and 10 out of 10 immunocompromised yeah. and put the conditions underneath because in fact, they are very different, but everybody right now when says, well, I, we need a fourth dose for an immunocompromised individual. Somebody says, I got diabetes, I'm immunocompromised, I need a fourth dose. And, and I think that creates a lot of confusion and that has created confusion in the sense that many people say, you know, pharmacists are not giving, are denying doses for immunocompromised individuals. And CDC is issuing uh, additional uh, guidance to pharmacies because precisely I think the word immunocompromised is heard by patients in very different ways. And I would say we are in a way responsible for having freely used the word immunocompromised. Well, I think it's, I, I mean, just, uh, let me just uh, interrupt Bonnie to say that I think, you know, the, con the, the communications in this, in this pandemic have been, you know, they're, they're, it's always in the news. It's been in the news uh, again this past week, but uh, I would, I would argue, uh, Carlos, that, you know, yes, we have been a little bit kind of here and there in our in our terminology but I think it's understandable I don't I don't think we should uh, blame ourselves for that but but I do think that as we go forward uh, getting a more and more precise definition on these things would be really helpful because I think uh, a lot of the confusion a lot of the hesitancy uh, on the on the part of the public is is because the communication has been pretty complicated Bonnie sorry to yeah. sorry to jump no, in no, no problem I think you're absolutely right so here's the issue I think there's two we're talking about two different conditions, essentially. We're talking about chronic medical conditions and then immunocompromising conditions. And we tend to conflate those in some ways. And part of that is because with the pandemic, we do see, if you look at the graphs of who's more likely to get a really hospitalized or die, it's both. It's people with underlying chronic conditions and immunocompromised, but it's also variant dependent. So we're not seeing, at least we're not seeing right now with the current data, and as opposed to Delta, where Delta was really affecting both groups equally uh, 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 hard, um, we're not seeing that with Omicron so much. So Omicron appears not to be affecting people with chronic medical conditions in the same inflammatory way that, say, uh, Delta and the previous variants were. And I also think the other problem is, uh, unfortunately, because of you know, the urgency to get vaccines out and try to study large populations, we don't have enough data in the immunocompromised populations or even in say diabetics, et cetera. So trying to get those subsets and really understand, for example, immune responses, or even just getting antibody titers or neutralizing antibody, those groups would really be helpful. And those data are just starting to come out. So you're right. I think, again, one of the themes here is we're two years in, we need to start fine tuning what we know and defining better. So one of the reasons I love doing these is I like to look at the participants and see my friends uh, uh, listening in. Susan Cohn from uh, from Chicago is 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 part of our uh, loyal audience and asks a question um, that is close to my heart. It's been about six months now since my uh, since my uh, third dose uh, of an mRNA. Uh, and she points out that there are a lot of people in that uh, in that group. Um, what are we thinking about a fourth dose? Uh, is six months 
the time to start thinking about it? Does the information that we got from Moderna uh, uh, help inform that? Um, where, where do we go with, you know, uh, with this? Honestly, it, it hasn't come up yet because I think we're still struggling to you know, sort out the, the, real, the first booster. And we only really have robust data from Israel. And that was not super promising. Does that, and you know, Peter and Carlos can chime in, but that data demonstrated the fourth booster didn't impact um, at, at least effectiveness. So the question is, why not? Is it that you need to wait longer? I mean, are you developing some kind of tolerance? It's not really clear at this point. So, but it is, I mean, we are all coming up on that six month period. So uh, we're gonna have to start addressing that question pretty soon. I, I think it's confusing. Go ahead, Peter. Uh, sorry. Yeah, sure. I think it's yep. confusing because people have different goalposts. So if you think about the goalposts of infection prevention, which, you know, arguably nobody really started out to solve that problem. Um, you need a booster like all the time because, you know, as body, every, every two months, point, uh, your antibodies go down. Right. So if you look, there was like an Australian model a while ago saying that every hundred days, your antibodies drop by half um, overall from the vaccine. So, so that's why the people in Israel probably didn't see a benefit of the photos because their rubric was, are we preventing infection, which you know, may or may not work with a vaccine that wasn't, look, you know, the antibodies look very different from Omicron. But um, you know, that, if you look at the other metric or goalposts, which is severe disease, hospitalization, death, that is really where the debate is in the US right now. You know, like, is two doses under 65 okay because nobody's going to the hospital anyway? Or and should we save three for some other population? And then the last thing I would say, Moderna is, you know, combining a flu and, and COVID shot, and Bonnie can speak more about that, but maybe in, in the, some future universe, some populations like healthcare workers, essential workers would need to prevent infection during periods of surges, so you'll boost them with a flu shot. And to make oh, matters, to make matters more confusing, both Pfizer and Moderna have started clinical trials with an Omicron-specific vaccine, and they're doing a, at least the, the Moderna one is and the Pfizer one. I think it's a, a pretty complicated design in which you can either, you know, get boosted after you as a fourth booster, or get boosted as a third booster, get all your vaccines. I mean, I think we're going to answer a lot of those questions, but some people say, should we wait for a more, a more, you know, a specific booster to take? I think the 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 issue is, and we need to remind this to people, is that we still don't know what the correlates of protection are specifically. So part of the issue is not really knowing this is this is a level of uh, neutralizing antibodies that is protective, and, and, and what is that, and, and how do we have, because to me, it's one of the most important things we need clinically, it's actually that, that correlate of protection that we can say, to me, finding a correlate of protection, a laboratory correlate of protection, is equivalent to having found the viral load as a correlate of efficacy for antiretrovirals. Until we're there, we are just putzing around with, with moving goalposts because you know we're asking different things from the vaccines. Yeah, so we have a couple of, absolutely, I agree that uh, Core, we, we, a year ago we asked at, at ACIP, please to the companies, can you please take your cohorts and try to determine surrogate, not just surrogate markers, but correlates of immunity we have a number of cohorts now. In fact, I'm working with Charlie Craig at UCSF. Um, Paul, you know him well, and uh, Scott Boyd here at Stanford. We have a cohort of patients that we followed since uh, July of 2020, 
and we've been getting serial blood to look at incident infection. And now we're actually asking for breakthrough infection. We've got the, the T cells, we've got other cells and we've got serology and we're gonna ask them, can you actually help us figure out um, what are real correlates? Like what's your, what antibody titer is protective? But it is incredibly difficult for any vaccine. I mean, you rarely have a true immune correlate of protection for any vaccine because they're, they're very hard to, to really study. You need to do prospective studies, but we have those data in a lot of cohorts around the country. So, uh, so all, all great issues. Uh, I've got three topics that, uh, that I want to try to get to, and I, I think we definitely want to hear about them. Uh, Merv Silverman says, what about uh, post-pandemic? What, how are we going to know when it's time to get back to normal? People want to know about, about treatment, um, uh, Paxlovid, and kind of practical issues there. Um, and we definitely want to get back to Bonnie and the pediatrics. I think Bonnie will put that off for a second. Um, and, uh, and, and just talk a little bit about, about treatment and maybe, uh, Peter, do you want to, do you want to start that off and, uh, and talk about where we are with, uh, with managing symptomatic people? What do we do about this whole 10 day versus five days? When do you go back to work? I know this is going to get us into the antigen test questions. Um, so that could easily take the rest of our time, uh, but, but try to get us started. So yeah, so um, you get infected, um, and right now, you know, we can talk about the diagnostic test users, but say it's a test, you know, you're positive, you wait uh, in uh, isolation for at least five days um, with symptom, day one, zero of the first day of symptoms, day zero, and then five days after that. Then you can test, um, uh, you know, in California, at least, uh, some of the places you don't have to test. You move, move around with a mask for the other five days. But in California, you test at day five. If you're positive, uh, you continue to stay in isolation. But you don't have to wait till day 10. Like I tell people, you can if you have a lot of tests, you can test it day six, day seven, until you're negative. And then even saving two or three days off of isolation is good enough for a lot of pe uh, people. So the problem is when people get positive coming back to the treatment options and we can go in there, um, they don't tell anybody except themselves or their family, maybe their work. But I think it's important for people when they're doing their home testing to contact their healthcare professional uh, so that you'll know what you're eligible for because time is money. And then we've exploded in outpatient therapeutics. So pills, uh, you know, mono, uh, Paxlovid or Molupiravir, monoclonal antibodies if you're somebody who's going to be severely, uh, potentially severely ill, and even remdesivir for three days, uh, which a lot of people have. So those are things that I think that could prevent hospitalization in the right person for up to 70% in monoclonals, and then uh, 88, 89% in terms of Paxlovid. So one of the uh, one of the issues that I'm a little bit, uh, Carlos, let me just keep going for a second here because I want to get to another uh, another topic too that, that has popped up is that now that more and more of us are doing home uh, home tests, uh, what is the value of uh, reports to the public health authorities yeah. of of new cases? 
uh, which is becoming not able to be tracked? And, and how does home testing affect uh, this, uh, this diagnosis and, and access to treatment? So, yeah, so let's, get, let's get to that yeah, uh, let me, briefly, uh, then I'll get back yeah. to Carlos. Okay, yeah, go ahead, so, Bunny. Yeah, so talking about surveillance, I mean, it's something that I learned when I was at CDC, and I'm teaching that course right now to the graduate students here. Um, you know, surveillance tools, um, remember, we started off trying to track cases. The CDC dumped the case reporting for a while because of, uh, because of reasons even before rapid antigens. It's very hard to do that. The endpoint really was something that is a little easier to track, which is hospitalizations and deaths. So I think um, with rapid antigens, it's I think we're gonna, we may be heading to a model that will be county-based or will be employer-based. I've already talked to a number of very large tech employers here in Silicon Valley, and, and even here at our own hospital, we are asking people when they get a rapid test, if they're symptomatic at home, we're not encouraging them to do PCRs anymore. We're encouraging rapid testing because in a high frequency environment, the, the pretest probability is gonna be high that your test, a positive test is real, especially if you're symptomatic. So just reporting that, maybe taking a picture, sending that in. So people, employers are gonna have to start tracking on their own. Um, I think maybe they're going to have to be reporting to counties, but it's, I think it's gonna break down to county-based surveillance and then linking into networks with CDC, for example. But we don't really know where that's headed. It's, I, I do think that opening up to rapid is a much more efficient way of opening up the economy and opening up ability to go back to work because we can't be hampered by inability to find tests the PCRs are great for diagnostic purposes when you're in the ED, when you're in a hospital setting, if you're, et cetera. But you, you know, to get back to school and work, the daily rapids or the weekly rapids are going to be your best bet. Great. Um, so, kind of go off on a random topic, but a question uh, from from the group um, is: What have we learned about? You know, and this kind of gets back to Omicron. One question was, why isn't Omicron as perhaps immunity-inducing as, as the other variants? But the other question that, that I see is uh, long COVID. Uh, what do we know about long COVID, especially uh, in, the, in the Omicron uh, era? Uh, is this something that vaccines will help uh, prevent? Uh, who wants to, to tackle that quickly? It's been obviously well, a lot in the, in the, in the press. It's, it's a lot of questions and a lot of very interesting questions. Uh, I would just start, Paul, by saying that following on what Peter said, these drugs that are showing, you know, 80% efficacy in preventing hospitalization, we're testing on, a vac on vaccinated individuals pre-Omicron. So we cannot really extrapolate. We're using them mostly in vaccinated individuals, but we can say this is going to be 80% protective in, in a vaccinated individual in decreasing hospitalizations. I think we don't have the data. And, and that, I think, needs to be seen as as really important. The, uh, as far as long COVID, I think there's, you know, first of all, I, I wanna applaud the NIH for quickly moving and actually funding their recovered cohort. Cause I think their recovered cohort is gonna help us answer a lot of these questions. I think NIH learned very quickly that, you know, they, they should have done what the Brits did and rapidly establish a COVID cohort because, you know, recovery continues to be the study that is giving a lot of the information and what to do clinically. And so let me just say that what recover is. So Stanford and UCSF are both recover sites. I imagine Emory is as well. It's we a are. national network to study PASC or post-acute sequelae of coronavirus. And it was funded by the NIH last year, but it's really just in its early stages. So yeah, I, I totally agree. With but you. I think this is going to allow us to do 
a lot of the studies that we need to do, including understanding the disease, understanding the etiology, studying the, the clinical spectrum. I think there are a couple of things that are interesting. Uh, there was a recent study published in Cell suggesting that when they did uh, multiomics, uh, four things appear to be predictive of, of developing long COVID. And, and one of them was having diabetes, right? Uh, when we talk about underlying conditions, having diabetes was one of them. And the other one is, 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 is RNA viremia, right? The amount of virus in the blood. So having the virus actually produce, it goes systemically, I think is important, which goes to Omicron. Omicron stays in the upper respiratory tract, mostly in the mucosa. So it may not be something that produces, uh, it produces long COVID. But again, we need to still wait and see. Uh, there were uh, you know, other factors that they identified, including the, the production of autoantibodies. But I think that the relations to vaccines are interesting. There's some preliminary data suggesting not only that vaccination, uh, even if you get a breakthrough infection and you're vaccinated, you're less likely for, to develop long COVID. But the other thing is that if you get vaccinated after having COVID, you're actually less likely to develop long COVID. So people who have not been vaccinated and get COVID, it's really important to get them vaccinated and especially to get them vaccinated soon. And you know the data suggests that probably two to four weeks after having had COVID, you significantly decrease the risk of long COVID. So I think there's a lot of questions to be answered, but to me, Long COVID is, is related to having this, this significant inflammatory component. And while the virus may play an important role, I think the host really is playing a very big role in this. And vaccines, by decreasing the, the amount of virus causing severe disease, which is what leads to hospitalizations, may actually be protecting you against long COVID. So another reason just, to get vaccinated is to prevent long COVID. So let me just underscore what you've, uh, what you've said, Carlos, because I think uh, one of the questions that has come up is, you know, I've had uh, a COVID, does that replace my need for a vaccine? And, and if I can yeah. restate what you said, no, it doesn't. It actually yeah. reinforces the need for a, for a vaccine. In fact, the data that, were, that have been published so far have demonstrated that people who, there was a, a CDC study that demonstrated people who had COVID actually had better antibody titers, but people who had COVID plus vaccine had even the, had the best titers. And the other thing to consider, because this is a misinformation type situation, people who had COVID had better titers if they survived and they didn't go to the hospital. So you, know, you, you have to get through the natural immunity impact. You have to get through the natural disease before you get the natural immunity. I wanna go back really quickly because, uh, you know, Carlos, you would know as well, but, and Peter, but the IDSA has the Infectious Disease Society of America has a really nice little algorithm for how to do treatment prioritization and, and alluding back to what Peter said. And the idea is if, you, if the patient can tolerate the drug, start with Paxlovid. And again, we need to really, what we need to do better is define who's high risk because that's a problem. We can't allude to that, but there's so many people in these giant high risk buckets. We need to really taper that. And the study in cell, some of those were Stanford and UCSF investigators also um, came up with this algorithm of four different omic areas. Now we need to tailor that down better so we can actually identify, like we did with HIV back in the day. We're, we're moving faster than we did with HIV, but how do we have markers of severity? Those, because otherwise you can't give everybody Paxlovid and nor should you has a lot of drug drug interactions. So so Ben, let me just jump in to, to say, you know, it's a it's a uh, it's not just an HIV audience, but it's a but it's a pretty heavily uh, uh, slanted HIV audience here. Um, uh, we're used to drug drug interactions, but but can you kind of mention a little bit more about Paxlovid in the drug interactions because some people might not have, have encountered uh, some of these uh, before. 
Yeah, so um, that's great. So Paxlovid is a combination of an antiviral. It's a, a, a RDRP as an inhibitor of the virus, but it also is, has ritonavir boosting in it. So the ritonavir is really the primary uh, drug that we need to be concerned about. Um, so um, I think if people have, are used to using uh, uh, protease inhibitors, you're ba we're back to square one here from the HIV days with that drug. Now, granted, uh, most people will not have that problem, but that is something to be considering. Um, and so that, that's an issue with Paxlovid. But on the plus side, it has 90% efficacy in clinical trials against non-Omicron, of course, um, for a preventing progression of disease. So that's why it is listed at the top as the best drug for very focused groups of people who are at risk for progression of disease. And then the next drug would be um, uh, the monoclones, right? So then uh, we're, we're talking about, um, but the, well, the monoclones are gone now, so we don't have the- Oh, you have, you have one, Capsulotrovinab, which right. is really- Right, so Trovim, I was gonna say, so UI, Lily, and Regeneron are gone, but we have Citrovimab, which is in very short supply. Um, that's a Glaxovir product, and it's, uh, but they're, they're a smaller group putting that together and Vir is here in the in, in the California area. So getting a hold of Citrovimab is gonna be very difficult. The next drug would be, or next treatment, if you can't use either of those two or you can't get access to them, is the expanded use authorization for remdesivir for outpatients. Now remember, remdesivir is a three hour infusion uh, for um, uh, three, uh, three day, it's, a, it's an infusion that you need to give over a period of time and you you know you may not have the facilities to do that either and then the last um, one would be molnupiravir which is another antiviral not does not have a combination so it's just molnupiravir very low adverse event effects if any but only 30 percent efficacy in preventing progression so so paxlovid so truvimab um uh, remdesivir and then um uh um Molnupiravir are the four drugs we have, but that, and maybe the other two can point out, but we just heard today that uh, the UK is going back to the drawing board and looking at repurposing old drugs. I mean, I know we've all been trying to do that, but we're still um, at that stage um, so, where we don't have great therapeutics for people, especially on the outpatient side. So let me, let me, let, thanks, Mike. Let me toss this to Peter and say one of the other questions that's come up is alternative uh, routes of administration for remdesivir. Um, people have been talking about that, uh, intranasal, uh, uh, other, other approaches. Uh, thoughts from what you've heard, Peter? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of people have some enthusiasm for developing a mucosal vaccine, because again, like we talked about, you'd be giving everybody boosters till you're blue in the face because your antibodies will drop, which is the first line of defense, but your T cells and B cells inside will kick the enemy out of your body, keep that viral load down, we think, in your bloodstream, you know, and preventing from getting sick. So that's why these people are looking at these alternative uh, vaccines um, for uh, being used you know, whether or not, so that's one strategy. Other strategy is giving an, a universal vaccine. But but in terms of uh, therapeutics and alternative uses of uh, these drugs, I think remdesivir was, was an interesting one in which let's try to make this previously inpatient drug outpatient, but it ends up being, you know, kind of a beer to give. And we at UCSF hasn't given one dose yet, even though everybody's um, activated because 
you have to get the three three chairs for the patient, three sequence separate days, uh, and a three hour infusion each time. And health at home can do it, but everybody's home sick with COVID. So just to add to that, we worked with Gilead early on. It feels like years ago it was just uh, in 2020 to try to help them figure out how to. You, obviously, you can't give an oral preparation. It just doesn't. It, you can't. It can't be given. It's not bioavailable. But they were trying to develop a nasal uh, route. It just. It also was uh, not working out. I don't know the latest this year, but as of last year, that really hadn't gone very far. But they have been trying to administer it by a nasal route as well. So well, one of the, the other- The other thing about remdesivir, which I think to me is fascinating, if you look at the Gottlieb study of outpatient therapy, you know, while there was, yes, this great, you know, decrease in hospitalizations, there was no difference in virological outcomes. So it's an antiviral that doesn't act by decreasing virus. I don't know how it acts. I think we still need to understand the mechanism of action, but clearly to me, you know, to me, as somebody who does infectious disease, to think that I have an antiviral who doesn't impact viral load, to me, is just fascinating. Well, I, there, there have been a lot of challenges to, uh, to following viral load. I think it's not as simple as it was with HIV. Um, but Carlos, a, a question that I, I love our audience here again, and we have a, a participant yeah. from Argentina um, who asks about the Sputnik uh, vaccine that's in common use in South America. Um, you want to you want to comment on that and maybe yeah. more broadly no, to is, some of these other issues? This is this is a big issue because you know the Russians and Gamalia distributed a lot of Sputnik in many regions of the world, including Latin America and you know Mexico, Argentina, many countries in Latin America also in, in Africa have used this drug. When the U.S. said you know foreign visitors coming to this country need to be vaccinated. Uh, uh, Sputnik is not included in that list, and it's not included in that list because it has not been presented to the WHO for, uh, for you know, EUL. And therefore, the problem with Sputnik is lies squarely with Gamalia and the Russians. They need to present the vaccine to WHO. The moment they get WHO authorization, then people that have received the vaccine need to, uh, can then uh, use it to travel to the US and to Europe and to many other countries. I, I don't know the specifics of why they, they, the Gamalia has not presented their data to the WHO, but it's really at the service to the millions that have been vaccinated with that vaccine, which by the way, if you look at the Lancet paper, is really a pretty good vaccine. It's yeah. a really yeah. interesting vaccine. It's a pretty good vaccine. So to me, it makes no sense that they haven't done the appropriate process to get the vaccine approved. I wonder if the current international tensions are at, at all involved, Carlos, let's not go there no, <laughs> with the this conversation. The Russians, uh, the, we're, we're, beating, we're beat out only by the Russians in the number of people who are unvaccinated. So right. that may well, say something also about the, the confidence there. And I, and I want to talk about uh, the, the vaccine hesitancy if we possibly have time. Uh, I want to definitely get back to Merv Silverman's question about what's the other end of this? Are we kind of this whole issue of pandemic to uh, endemic uh, uh, situations, when getting back to normal. I think everyone is desperate. Uh, but before that, because I know that there has been a lot of talk, Bonnie, about uh, pediatric vaccines. Can you, I, I, you could go for an hour, I know, but uh, could you give us a short summary of where we stand exactly with a pediatric Some, vaccine? Thumbnail. So, uh, so uh, right now we have a Pfizer. So I'll stick to Pfizer. Moderna is trying to get their vaccine approved. Uh, there are some issues. Uh, we don't know what they are. We suspect there's some myocarditis signals, but we don't know for sure. The FDA that we've spoken to doesn't 
hasn't said and it's been, but we do think it's gonna move ahead. And there are some trials for Moderna that look like they're gonna be promising by maybe March or April. But Pfizer right now is approved, has been approved for some time now for 12 to 15 year olds at, and uh, for 12, 12 and above at, um, at, at 30 micrograms uh, per dose for two doses, 21 days apart. The five to 11 year old, we published that paper in November, uh, uh, 10 micrograms two dose, per dose, two doses, 21 uh, days apart. Very safe, 90% efficacy, uh, still pretty good world, real world effectiveness as well. We're in the middle of the under five trials, the six to 23 month olds and the two to four year olds. Those trials used a very high bar for non-inferiority. It was an immunobridging study. And unfortunately for the six, well, the six to 23 year olds met non-inferiority, the two to four year olds did not, but they used the, the FDA imposed a very high non-inferiority measure, outcome measure of 1.0 GMR, geometric ratio. So um, the point is that now the two dose is not going to work. And by the way, that's a three microgram dose. So while the five to 11 year olds is one third of the adult dose, the under five is a tenth of the adult dose. And that's because the 10 microgram dose produced high fevers in about 20% of the phase one kids. So you can't go to 10, they pick three. Um, so at this point, we, we've pushed back quite a bit, but in fact, there's a lot of pressure from a lot of people to get a vaccine for the under fives and we get it, but we need data and, the, and we haven't seen the data yet. So the FDA should be posting it soon, even though we're investigating it ourselves, they don't show us. So we don't know how close the antibody data were for the, five, the, two, the two to four year olds, but it's likely that it wasn't terrible. Um, in the meantime, they've turned it into a three dose uh, pro, uh, a protocol. So all of the kids who got enrolled in the two dose study are now being re-enrolled. As of Monday, we started giving them their third doses of three micrograms. And we'll see if that boosts to non-inferiority for the, all of the kids. And it'll turn into, as Carlos said before, not a booster, but a three dose series. Um, and to everybody to remember that of the 17 vaccines we give kids, most of them get two to five doses of all the vaccines anyway. So makes sense. Um, at this point, FDA is going to move ahead with the with Pfizer. It's really unusual because they actually really pressured Pfizer to put this forward as a two-dose um, rolling EUA, they call it, meaning um, let's just see how much we can get. So in, in line with malaria vaccine at 39% efficacy, Maybe it's not perfect. Maybe the antibody levels are reasonable for a good proportion of the kids, but at least let's live with something that we can get into kids now, given that we will probably be done with the phase, the third dose studies by March or April. So let's that's put a, Let's put a bookmark on that, Bonnie, for the next discussion like this that we have, because I suspect there's going to be a lot of movement uh, in the pediatric uh, vaccine world. And obviously one of the issues that everyone is worried about is kids and schools and masks and stuff. Before we do that, I, I do want to get to the question that, that uh, Silverman raised, <clears throat> which is um, kind of, can, is it time to think about getting back to normal? And I th I've, I've seen well, you know, news even today. So Carlos I mean, and Peter, you know, Paul, uh, Carlos, well, go ahead. I, and I, I live in Georgia and we're back to normal, right? I mean, Many parts of the country have decided, politicians and many others have decided that it's time to return to normal 
and everything is open. But I do go back to the pediatrics. I think in order for, for the economy and other things to open normally, we have to stabilize schools. And stabilizing cool schools is, I think, very important. And so far, as you know, so for example, it's going to be really important to stop asymptomatic testing in schools because sending kids home then is disrupting. People have to stay home and people have to then not go to work and creates a lot of. So there's nothing normal about having your kids' education being interrupted because they're being sent home. So I think you know part of this route to to quote unquote normal requires unwinding a lot of the things that we put in place. And I think one of the things that we probably are unwinding first is is uh, asymptomatic testing. I think that's an important one. And then we start thinking about other things that need to be unwind. But I think, you know, the idea of, of, of normal is, is, is very, you know, very artificial, right? Because there's still a global pandemic. And, and we, we cannot say, well, you know, it's, it's normal in my bubble, but I don't care about the rest of the world. That, that gets us in trouble every single time. We don't care about the rest of the world, but then Delta surges in India. We don't care, but then Omicron surges in South Africa. And I can go on and on. So the reality is we need a global approach to this pandemic. And the answer is the global pandemic has not ended. And we need to address part of the return to normal requires leadership to address the global pandemic and really thinking, how do we get the millions, billions still unvaccinated, globally vaccinated? And that to me, when people say, I want to return to normal, well, write to your congressman, write to whoever is necessary and say, we really need to have a, a program that truly vaccinates the world and stop this process that we are donating vaccines, that we're giving charity and not really having a program to truly vaccinate people. I mean, with smallpox eradication, we truly had a program that led to, to their smallpox eradication. We are not doing that and we have not done that. And I think it's time to do it. Yeah, I think we've seen the, the problems in trying to make it up as, we've, uh, as we live with a, uh, with a still expanding pandemic and uh, not to let people off the hook, but um, but it has been pretty ragged in terms of planning and and, and communications. But uh, you know we're almost out of our of our time. Um, I, I want to come back at our, some of our next discussions to masking, especially masking in, in young kids, uh, the whole uh, issue of school. Um, and but uh, I'm going to close maybe with one quick question to Peter, uh, and this comes from the audience. Um, what about a person who's uh, kind of at home, um, has been antigen positive, um, is still antigen positive at, at 10 days? Uh, let's say a healthcare worker. Can that person safely go back to work? Do we know that that person is not going to transmit this, uh, this virus? No. Yeah, so I think um, my approach is that don't test the day 10 if you're not immunocompromised. Don't test, don't tell. No, don't test at all. <laughs> I mean... Uh, because I don't know what that positive antigen means. And I think if you're trying to use testing to get out of isolation earlier, that's fair. But don't use testing to determine transmissibility after day 10, unless you're immune compromised. And then maybe they, you know, you can talk to a healthcare professional. So this has, um, it, you know, we, we have a, a couple minutes left, but I think we want to kind of catch our breath and admit that we've just scratched the surface. I've, I've never seen as uh, lively an audience in terms of in terms of questions. I don't know if the uh, other panelists have been able to, to kind of try to follow that that stream. Uh, it's been all over the place. I've tried to, um, to, to pick a few questions that that are that are broader, uh, especially from people I know and love. Uh, but um, I think I think what we've what we've heard today is that, uh, you know, while you 
think we've been through it all. There's still so many, uh, so many questions that are really important ones that are still open. So uh, we'll definitely come back to this. Go ahead, Carlos. Yeah. And Paul, the problem is I I remind people, it reminds me of the anecdote when Einstein used to teach at at Princeton and somebody, a student asked him, said, you know, professor, every year in the exam, you ask the same questions. And he says, yeah, the questions are the same, but the answers are different. I mean, and that's that's the certainly what it feels same, like. But the answers yeah. change, and I think that's part of the problem, right? Doesn't that feel? It's it's well, absolutely I'm true. Put in a plug yeah. Go ahead, Bunny. I want to put in a plug for us to encourage training more infectious disease people and more epidemiologists um, because we clearly we're not out of jobs yet, and uh, we need more people to focus on this area. And maybe Here. some of us will come back from retirement and retrain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so Bonnie, Carlos and Peter, uh, as always, uh, you know, it's just amazing um, uh, what you bring to this. And, uh, and I think I'm sure the audience will, will agree. Uh, uh, we've already talked the possibility of doing this again. I've certainly volunteered um, and I think the others have as well. Um, maybe at some point we'll do this in person. We'll show us on, on stage uh, before a live, live audience. I want to thank the, uh, uh, the uh, leaders and staff of the IAS USA. It's been, uh, it's been great. Um, and uh, here is uh, how to keep in touch with other things the organization is doing. And uh, again, uh, thanks to the audience uh, for your participation. You've been spectacular. So thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you.